This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Our last sponsor creates survival technology as well as camping and other outdoor gear. Outer Wild's ultimate goal is to provide clean technologies for everyday devices as they are driven to create a more sustainable world. Use the code IS, that's a capital I, capital S, on your next purchase and receive an additional 10% off. So go give their products a look. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. So welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I am joined by Dr. Jennifer Cavanaugh, uh, who is the director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program in the Rand Arroyo Center and a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. Uh, she also leads Rand's Countering Truth Decay Initiative, a portfolio of projects exploring the diminishing reliance on facts and analysis in U.S. political and civil discourse. Her research focuses on U.S. defense strategy, international conflict and military interventions, disinformation, and the relationship between U.S. political and media institutions. She is a faculty member at the Pardee Rand Graduate School and also teaches research methods courses as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Uh, Kavanaugh graduated from Harvard with a BA in government and a minor in Russian language. She earned her PhD in political science and public policy at the University of Michigan. Anyway, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. That's uh, quite the list of accomplishments that you have there. And in particular, one of the things that I always like to do, you know, I guess pointing towards your education is I'm just really curious to hear people who have, you know, gone through and earned a doctoral degree, kind of their journey. What exactly, you know, why it is that you chose political science? Why did you decide to move on and I suppose get a, you know, get a dissertation or not a dissertation, a PhD in it? Um, so I guess we could start there. Like, uh, what's uh, what, what's your background? Why did you decide that public, political science is where uh, where you wanted to end up? Sure. So I will admit that I changed my mind a lot of times. Um, and over the course of my life, I have wanted to be just about every profession. Um, and I have, I wanted to be just about every major. I, um, I had a lot of interests and I couldn't really make up my mind. So I think what ultimately led me down the path of political science, I actually went to college thinking that I would major in literature. Um, but what I really loved about political science was the practicality of it. Uh, I loved, um, I really was found myself to be fascinated with like political philosophy, which is something that I thought would be deathly boring and kind of dreaded taking, but then ended up really enjoying. Um, I loved thinking about how governments worked. I loved thinking about what these different types of um, political theories said about our society and other types of societies. Um, and then um, I have always been very interested in, in thinking about conflict and why states um, end up fighting each other um, and, and, and what ends up ending those conflicts or starting them again. Um, so I think that over time, uh, that's kind of what drew me, in, drew me in, but it was really just a couple of courses that I took for my early years that I just really found to be fascinating. And so I went down um, that path. And um, I feel like in college, I made a lot of decisions just based on like what seemed best in the moment. I did not have a strategy looking back on it. I wish I had been more strategic and thinking about what <laughs> classes I took and how I structured my time. Cause I feel like maybe I missed opportunities that I could have taken better advantage of, but maybe that's part of college is figuring out like where you're going. So in terms of why I ended up getting a PhD um, after college, I went to work at Rand. Um, I had a research assistant job um, for a professor at the Kennedy school, my senior year of college. And I really loved it. I just fell in love with the process of doing research to me it felt and still feels sort of like a scavenger hunt of just looking for different pieces of information and trying to follow the, the thread um, to get the right answers. And I, I needed a break after college. I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't think I should go to grad school just because. Um, 
So I, I decided I would work first. And since I liked research so much, I decided I would get a job as a research assistant. So I ended up getting a job at RAND um, and I loved it. I worked as a research assistant for three years, but as a research assistant, your main jobs typically are literature reviews, um, entering data in spreadsheets, taking notes at meetings. And I, I loved doing it, but I had ambitions to do much more. You know, I think I kind of at one point thought to myself, well, I don't wanna be the person entering the data in the spreadsheet my whole life. I wanna be the person telling someone else to enter the data in the spreadsheet and thinking more strategically about projects. And in order to get to where I wanted to be, I really did need to get a PhD. So I decided to go back to school um, in political science because I was at the time really interested still in conflict and terrorism and really wanted to um, you know, study it in more depth. So I went to Michigan because they had a really great interdisciplinary program allowed me to do both political science and public policy at the same time. And it was really important to me to stay in the policy world. I didn't really have any um, desire to go into academia. I really wanted to do something that was applied um, and where I could work in the policy world, applying political science to make public policy better. Um, so that's where I went. And then when I finished, I came back to RAND because that was kind of what I was yeah. wanting to do. So. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great story. I think it's really interesting there how you, you know, said when you were in when you were in college, you kind of wanted to do everything. I mean, I can totally relate to that, where you just kind of pulled in all these different directions, and eventually, you choose one path, and it's sometimes just a course or two, or even like a really good professor that you have that mm -hmm. kind of points you down a particular direction. You're like, yeah, this is kind of what I want to do. I mean, I still second guess it, I'll admit that yeah. sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I should have taken more science classes and become like a, a medical researcher or something like that, you know, maybe I missed my calling, maybe I could have <laughs> been the person who invented the COVID vaccine or something, you know, but, <laughs> but here I am, my life is pretty good, so just keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's, <clears throat> it sounds like you're doing interesting, uh, interesting work mm -hmm. at RAND as well, which we'll get into later. But anyway, um, for those who, I guess, are unfamiliar with RAND Corporation, uh, what exactly is it and kind of like what's its mission? So RAND is a public policy mm -hmm. think tank. Um, I would place it sometimes, or a research organization really, I would place it somewhere between an academic university and a consultancy like a Bain or BCG. Um, so we have government clients um, and, uh, and we compete for foundation grants and then when we do these projects. Um, uh, uh, most researchers at RAND have PhDs, um, and then we're, we also have a really great staff of um, uh, people with um, a MAs and other types of um, technical degrees to support the research process and lead us down innovative paths and methodologies. Our, our mission is to inform policymakers with uh, fact-based research and analysis so that they can make better policy decisions and um, also to inform the public. So we publish about a thousand reports a year and all of our reports are available for free um, by downloading them from our website, which is www.rand.org. So we have these two key missions um, and, and that's and we, we try to bring kind of the power of um, interdisciplinary research for sure. Uh, we have researchers across disciplines. Everything we do is very interdisciplinary um, and try to use those tools to um, inform policymakers as they tackle complex challenges. So it's a it's a nonprofit organization? That's right. Yeah, okay. And you said to inform policy, so I'm assuming you work with a lot of uh, a lot of individuals in government then? I think mm -hmm. you mentioned that a little bit, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so- that, Would you say that's like your primary clientele is working with gov uh, government officials when it comes to policy? Obviously all, all evidence-driven fact-based, like you said. Mm -hmm. Well, so RAND started off um, as a federally funded research and development center only. Um, so we have okay. uh, three of or four of these. Um, one supports the Army, one supports the Air Force, one supports the Office of Secretary of Defense, and one supports the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so that's kind of, that's a big part of what RAND does are these FFRDC contracts where we do directly support government agencies, um, a, a lot of defense agencies, but also State Department. Um, uh, and then there is, though, um, a large body of work um, and growing um, part of RAND focused on social and economic policies, and that is really domestic focused. Um, so they do work um, on education, healthcare, um, and a range of other topics. Um, and so there, again, some of our work is supporting government agencies, so Department of Education, um, NIH, um, 
uh, Health and Human Services, but there is work that we do that's funded by foundations and donors and other types of things like that. But definitely a lot of the work that we do um, is, is to support directly policymakers in government. Very interesting. So I guess we can move on now to the, the meat of what we're gonna be talking about today, <clears throat> excuse me, which is what you're working on. Uh, so you're, one of the reasons why I reached out to you is because you recently published a book with some other people or um, a collection of research papers, I should say, uh, by the name of Truth Decay. And that this is something, this is an area that you're working on. Another way I went through your bio briefly, uh, briefly in the beginning, they're talking about like disinformation, things of that nature and uh, communicating between uh, the, the, the public and government and things of that nature. Anyway, I'm just curious as to how you got involved with this area of truth decay, um, or I should say like the fake news, misinformation, mm -hmm. disinformation, uh, that particular topic. Is that something that uh, you of your own accord got involved with, or was it just, you know, kind of presented to you like this is something that we need to be working on and kind of volunteered for the position or how did that, how did that work? Well, so I think I'm going to start by defining kind of what I mean by truth decay so that everybody sure. understands what I'm talking about. So truth decay is the term that we use at RIAN to refer to the diminishing role that facts and data play in our political and civil discourse and in the policymaking process. Um, it's related to efforts at other organizations on things like post-truth politics. Um, some people refer to the phenomena as like fake news or other types of other types of similar terminology. The reason that we use the term truth decay rather than post-truth is that we really see the, the, the erosion of our reliance on facts and data in specific sectors of society. So if you think about sports, baseball, basketball, these are areas where data is becoming more and more important. Um, these these uh, sports organizations are hiring data analysts so they can make better use of data to perform better. Similarly, businesses are making better use of data analytics and big data to inform their decisions and their processes. So it's not everywhere that we see this turn away from facts and data. And so to say that we're living in a post-truth society ignores the fact that the use of facts and data is actually very um, inconsistent across sectors. And so we focus on this concept of truth decay. And what we're really talking about is not the decay of truth, but really the decay of our use of facts um, and analysis to inform the way we think about our key policy issues. And that's important because when we think about truth, we get into a whole philosophical realm about, you know, is there a truth? Who's truth? And we kind of sidestep those questions. Those are important philosophical questions, but what we're really interested in is thinking about the, the role of facts. So how did I become interested in this? Well, I think, you know, this was a phenomenon that by 2015, 2016, we had all observed this sense that facts were increasingly separate from uh, public debates about key issues like healthcare and immigration. Um, crime rates. There's all these areas of, of key where key climate change is another one. Key policy areas where there's a body of evidence, a body of facts, and yet an increasing number of people are discarding those facts um, and making decisions based on other factors, what they want to be true, what the party line is, things like that. And so my boss, um, Michael Rich, who's the CEO, president and CEO of RAND, He's also been very concerned about this phenomenon and he started being concerned about it because of its implications for RAND. I said at the beginning that RAND is a policy organization whose mission is to use data and analysis to inform policymakers. If data and analysis no longer matter to policy decisions, then what exactly is RAND's role? Um, so originally that was the, the genesis of his concern about the problem. But stepping back, as we talked about it, I think the bigger challenge or the more uh, uh, severe challenge is the challenge that that erosion of our trust and our use of facts and data presents to our democracy. Um, democracy in its very nature requires that we're able to have uh, fact-based discussions about policy issues and together through discussion and civil discourse, um, weigh and balance the facts and evidence we have um, and the priorities that we have to form better policies. At least that's how it should work in the ideal, um, in the ideal sense of the word. So if we don't have that, if we don't have policymakers who can agree on facts as the starting point for policy debates, um, then it's not, you know, it's not really clear that I think that that presents a real threat to the to the foundation of democracy as we imagine it to be. Uh, and so, you know, Michael had been thinking and talking about this for a while. 
and decided that it was a really important issue for Rand to take on. Uh, he and I had done some related work together, so he asked me to lead this research effort to take a more systematic approach to understanding what this phenomenon is and what its consequences were and what we could do to counter it. Yeah, I know that, you know, going back to when the genesis of it on your end, you know, you're talking about like 2015, 2016, would you, would you say that truth decay is a recent phenomenon? I know if, if, if truth decay was on a trend before 2016-ish, uh, I know that I got a gigantic uh, boost um, around that time period, just because I know that part of the political discourse, there was this disconnect from, from fact. Uh, there's this disconnect from science, but is uh, truth decay in and of itself, I suppose, a recent phenomenon in a sense that it started in 2016, or is it something where, you know, for the past couple of decades, you've seen a trend in the American in the American public of, in certain sectors again, uh, mm -hmm. of where you have this separation of fact from, let's say, public policy. So I think that we can actually say that truth decay itself is something that we've seen in previous periods of American history even. Um, if you think back to the 1880s and 1890s with yellow journalism, um, this willingness to push aside facts, um, in this case for economic purposes, to use exaggerated and um, elaborate stories to sell more newspapers. Um, in the 20s and 30s, we saw um, a push away from facts using news as entertainment with tabloid journalism. Um, when radio first um, was prominent as a means of information sharing, we had powerful radio hosts who used their platform to spread opinions. That sounds very similar to cable news, right? Um, we, in the 60s and 70s, we have another period where um, facts and data were pushed aside, um, helped by television to spin narratives, um, to tell stories. Um, so I think we see throughout American history this thread of periods of time when facts and evidence seem peripheral, um, when other types of, of drivers, whether it's economic or political or social, um, tend to overwhelm facts um, and make them um, less prominent. And interestingly, we see these periods are also times when we have new information technologies, um, whether it's newspapers or radio or television. So there's something about the emergence of new technologies as a means of providing information that changes how we consume and share, produce information. Um, and that's probably a contributing factor along with kind of the social and economic context to create these periods where um, facts and evidence are less important um, than other pieces, anecdotal information, opinions, emotions, other types of information. Um, and in all those all those periods, the phenomenon is complex. So in the current period, I mean, obviously here, the, the change in information technology is the rise of the internet. Um, and I think that we can look back to like the start of around 2000 as the start, as when we start to see some of these trends reemerge and become much more um, prominent and prob uh, problematic as we move through the 2000s into the 2010s. This is, you know, social media is becoming increasingly prominent with Facebook and then Twitter. Um, and you see these spaces really change over time. Um, now, I, you, I don't think you can pin it to a specific event or a specific person or a specific party, but you do start to see a lot of the indicators, um, especially data trends of um, people's opinions and evidence start to diverge. So as we get more and more evidence that vaccines are safe around 2003, more and more people start to think they're not. Um, we see as crime rates start to go down, more and more people believe that crime rates are going up. Um, same thing with GMOs. We see a really sharp jump in the number of people who think that genetically modified foods are not safe to eat. Um, climate change becomes a divisive issue with people rejecting facts. So we start to see these trends emerge. Uh, and so um, I would place it back this current period to that point. Um, but I would say that it's important to recognize that some of the elements of what we're observing now have been present in previous periods as well in slightly different forms, but it does seem to be something that has uh, pervaded our, our recent history as well. So I think it's uh, really interesting what you pointed out about how these periods of truth decay in American history uh, are 
or happen uh, because of the arrival of a new technology that you can actually disseminate information through. So I guess for a while, it's kind of like the wild, wild west mm -hmm. and people have access to this new platform that they can disseminate in, uh, information. So everybody's scrambling to put information out there and nobody's really doing their due diligence and it's allowing all of this uh, like bad information essentially to slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps after a time period, society realizes that there's a bunch of nonsense being spread via this new informational platform and there's some sort of, whether it's like through regulation or society pushes back to some degree and perhaps moves back towards uh, truth more than they were during the truth, to, truth decay era. I mean, is that, is, that, is that a fair assessment of what has happened in the past? Yeah, I mean, so I like to think about it as like your teenage years. Your teenage <laughs> years are messy, right? They're in between like when you first get your first, you're a child and you're an adult. And I think that oftentimes we see these periods of messiness uh, which you could term as the wild, wild west, but I, I like to think of them as like, the you know, they're growing pains. We have these new technologies, but not everyone knows how to use them. Now we talk a lot about media literacy, right? People don't know how to find, they don't know how to distinguish between true and false information. They, are, they don't know how, you know, they don't have the skills to navigate to find what they're looking for, or they share too quickly. Um, you know, so I think that we, that that thinking about the ways in which over time we become natives of our tech of our new technology, we become better at using them, and we also develop institutions to um, to govern them. Um, regulation, obviously, regulation of online spaces is like a hot button issue, but we do have ways that we govern other types of media. You know, we have rules and um, systems to govern newspapers. We have rules to govern radio. Um, we, and, and you know, in the, one of the ways that the um, yellow journalism was eventually brought under control was not by external regulation, but by journalists coming together and agreeing to a set of principles that they would stick to. So, you know, I think that we, over time, our society does develop institutions to manage, um, you know, information spaces, but we don't have those yet for, for online spaces. Yeah, and I'm slightly skeptical that the allowing the industry to come together, because like in particular, I think that social media, like you see a lot of the uh, false information being propagated throughout social media. So a good, I mean, I don't, you would know better when it comes to like the percentages of where, you know, truth decay is, is, is happening uh, most in society um, through like which, which informational mediums. Uh, but I know that social media is probably playing a pivotal role in in all of this. And when it comes to social media, I mean, there's only a handful of actors in like Silicon Valley who are responsible for all of these platforms that have, you know, just lots and lots of information on it. And obviously people, a lot of people are using, uh, using this technology on a daily basis, uh, but, you know, allowing them to uh, self-regulate. I don't, I mean, obviously, hopefully give, giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I don't know in this particular situation if, you know, if uh, allowing the industry to self-regulate is actually going to happen, um, that there might need to be some outside forces, I guess, but I, I don't know what your opinions are on that. Well, I would say that the past, you know, five years um, have, have suggested that the social media platforms aren't really up to self-regulation in any real way. Um, you know, when we when I first started working on this, I went to a lot of different um, events and conferences and you know meetings where people come together to talk about these things. And some of them were in Europe, and Europe has tended to be sort of uh, uh, on the cutting edge or at least ahead of us in terms of thinking about managing these spaces. Part of that is their legal structure makes it a little bit easier. Um, the First Amendment does place some pretty strong restrictions on the involvement of third parties, because if you get the government involved, that places pretty significant boundaries on the types of um, the types of governance that can occur. Um, but the, the, uh, most of the events I went to in Europe at first, they, the, the people would be like, yeah, we, we think that the social media companies deserve the chance to, to try self-regulation, to show us that, you know, to, to experiment with it. But now that's not really the sense over there. I mean, they've, they've taken pretty significant steps to place limits on um, what social media platforms can do. They've, you know, they've developed the, the data protection um, guidelines, but also um, they, ha they have a system of fines um, if social media companies 
you know, leave false information up too long or violate other types of principles. So I think that that's the way the sentiment has been moving is just kind of toward the disillusionment um, with the ability of social media companies to regulate themselves. Around the US election, they tried a lot of new things in terms of limiting political advertising, labeling things that were false, providing additional context, um, blocking out things that violated policy. Um, so, I mean, I guess we'll maybe learn to some extent, like whether those things were helpful, but certainly those things in and of themselves are, gonna, are not gonna be sufficient. And they were targeted at high profile accounts where this, the, and the spreading of false information isn't just coming from those types of accounts. So I think they, you know, I, I, I guess I see some glimmer of hope they're taking a more proactive stance but at the same time, it's taken us five years for that tiny little glimmer. It's not really clear that they have the incentives or the will to take the steps that they would have to, to actually have a measurable impact on the problem. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they're publicly traded companies and they're beholden to their shareholders. So when you operate off of you know, maximal, maximal uh, returns as far as profits go, and one of the ways to do that is by driving clicks. And the best way to drive clicks is through you know, fear, uncertainty, doubt, or the spreading of false information. Because um, you know, whether it's like uh, false information, fake news, or I guess false information is kind of like an umbrella term, but uh, just uh, bad information um, spreads quicker than like the actual facts do. So like by the time um, something actually gets out into the internet space. Uh, it's been disseminated wide and far before the fact checkers can even catch up to it is, uh, okay. is what I'm trying to say. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just kind of, um, it's an unfortunate situation. And these companies, I don't, like you said, uh, I'm more than willing to give them a chance to do it, but they've been brought before Congress multiple times, they've had ample time to make changes. They have made some changes, uh, for example, the implementation of fact checkers, but I just don't think it's enough. And they don't have the incentive to do it because it's not built into their business model. Right, yeah. Um, and I mean, one argument people make is that the problem's too big, right? Like how, how many you'd have to, you even when they remove thousands of bots and thousands of pieces of facing fake information it's only a drop in the bucket but i think the counter argument which i think is a valid one is that at the size and level of profit that these companies have they can afford to put more resources towards the problem if they wanted to so you know and i i think they would never be able to solve it totally but they could certainly do more to indicate that a good faith effort to actually tackle the problem and even if they wanted to take a relatively conservative stance and say, you know, we're only going to remove um, things that are, you know, encouraging violence and hate speech and bullying or whatever, you know, like find, make a list of kind of the most objectionable types of content. Um, that would be a step in the right direction. Um, they say that they do that, but there's so many so much evidence uh, of people who have had experiences where that hasn't been the case that it's hard to believe that they're really doing it to the best of their ability. Um, so I, you know, I do think thinking about like what a government structure looks like that would better align incentives, whether that's bringing in a third party organization to help or creating a system uh, of incentives that helps move them in the right direction. Um, I think that there's room for a discussion about those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that these discussions happen sooner rather than later because uh, whatever is happening as far as a truth decay and the damage to society's social fabric, it needs to be repaired. Um, I, polarization is something that always comes up in any of these conversations that I have. Uh, we're incredibly polarized as a nation right now. I mean, it's not as bad, I think, as some people think, but certainly when you look at polarization over uh, over history, um, it is it is pretty bad right now, and there are obvious deleterious effects to society that we're experiencing because of it. So, um, social media definitely is playing a role in this. So I'm, I'm hoping that something can be done under the you know with the next four under the, 
over the next four years under the new administration. I know that under the previous administration, they were beginning to get the ball ro rolling on some like antitrust or perhaps some sort of regulation when it comes to, uh, uh, I think particular in particular it was Facebook, maybe Google as well. I, don't mm -hmm. quote me on that, but I'm just hoping to see something happen because I don't want it to continue to get worse. I don't think anybody wants to, wants to see it uh, get worse and that something definitely needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I think, um, you know, the issue of polarization in social media is an important one. I think when you look at the data, it suggests that Americans actually agree on a large number of issues, a lot more issues than you would think. Um, there are certain hot rod issues where we disagree strongly and those are around some of the key political issues, right? Like some um, uh, social, like culture wars type issues, um, as well as um, uh, things like immigration, um, healthcare, things like that. Um, but I think that what's more concerning is the aspect of polarization, the sense like of us versus them. That even though like there are a lot of similarities, we don't recognize those similarities. Instead, we focus on the differences and we have these um, oftentimes stereotypical views of what the other side looks like. And so we feel a lot of animosity towards them um, because those are the types of feelings that lead to this like significant cleavage. Um, and that's much harder to repair and leads to things like the events on January 6th and other types of political violence. I would actually be less concerned if the polarization was around issues, because you can bridge divides around issues by thinking about compromises and things like that. But when the divide is sort of this emotional um, hatred, um, that becomes, I think, much, much tougher um, to tackle. And I think truth decay plays into that in a lot of ways. Um, and, and one of the key ways is by really facilitating and encouraging the formation of these alternate narratives on either side of the divide. Um, we get sucked into what are rather insular views of the world based on the people that we are surrounded by. Um, and that's exacerbated by the communities that we live in online and also the communities that we live in offline, which are often very homogenous um, just because of the way um, kind of uh, regional sorting works. Um, and so at the same time as polarization can make truth decay worse because uh, when we're divided, we're not sharing information um, that can feed the alternative narratives. Truth decay also can feed polarization um, by by creating the demand uh, for these alternative narratives. So these two effects kind of feed off of each other in a negative way. <laughs> yeah, it's a self-feeding yeah. phenomenon. And that's why we yeah. talk about a, the system. We talk about truth decay as a system where the causes are feeding into the phenomenon at the same time as the phenomenon is worsening the causes and the consequences are mixing in. So you have a system that's self-sustaining and self-making itself, you know, making itself worse, self-generating. Uh, and that makes tackling it that much tougher. So um, based off of your research, when it comes to the observation of uh, truth decay, the moving away from facts, do you think that, well, I shouldn't say do you think, but like based off of, again, based off of your, of your research, the various uh, media platforms that are out there. So obviously there's social media we talked about, but there's also regular news as well. So like Fox, CNN, MSNBC, uh, perhaps radio, talk radio as well, uh, podcasts. I'm not exactly sure which mediums that you looked at, but were you able to figure out like, hey, these you know, this aspect is where the majority of people are getting their information from, and this is where a good amount of the truth decay is happening. I mean, can you even say something like that, or? Well, so in terms of information consumption, I would say some of the most interesting, uh, some of the most interesting results for our work has been that, first of all, people use lots of sources. So there's a lot of focus on the number of people who are using social media for news and how concerning that is, but it's important to remember that for most people, social media is only one source of news, so it's not the only one that they're relying on. So that's a little bit better. Um, people, the, the most commonly used sources of news tend to be print newspapers still, even though subscriptions were way down, and um, uh, broadcast television news. So, you know, thinking thinking about the nightly news channel, the nightly news on public uh, on, on broadcast television, um, followed by cable news. In terms of where the quote unquote truth decay is coming from. What we did look at is, um, so we didn't look at which news sources are providing the most false information, but we did look at how 
the tone and style of news reporting has changed over time and how it differs across platforms. So we did that using a content analysis tool called Randlex. What we found was, first of all, there has been some change over time. So if you look at newspapers and compare the 1980s to the present, we do see some shift away from sort of an event-based reporting towards something that's more narrative. But the biggest changes that we observed are across platforms. So newspapers, print newspapers, the online journalism, places like um, Politico, Huffington Post, um, Breitbart. Um, uh, so that's one, one thing that we compared. And then also broadcast television to cable television. So where we see the biggest changes in terms of news reporting are those across platform shifts from traditional to new media. What we found is a really sharp increase in um, things like emotion, outrage, um, advocacy, argumentation. Um, so those are the things that characterize these online, um, online journalism as well as cable news. Um, and when we look at newspapers, uh, broadcast television, we see something that still, even in a more narrative form, is much more event-based, um, the who, what, where, when, and why that we would expect to see um, when looking at journalism. Um, and so that shift I think is really important because that's, it's not that there's any problem with having the um, both types of information in the information ecosystem. The problem comes when people consume say online journalism or cable news and think that they're getting objective fact-based reporting because that's not what it is. And so understanding the distinctions and being able to distinguish between the types of information you're consuming is really important. There's no problem with consuming any of these types of information, as long as the consumer is aware of what they're getting and ideally supplements that with other types of news information as well. Well, it is, uh, it is refreshing to hear that people are getting their news from a variety of sources because that's, that's always good. Uh, when you're looking at news that you get it from a variety. Uh, so that way you're not like too much in a um, particular partisan bubble. However, it seems like uh, people are more so in their bubbles uh, these days than, uh, than in the past. However, so it almost seems a bit counterintuitive to me, uh, just because you know if you look at the, the business models of with the social media platforms and even with Google and things like that, I mean, if, if I were to type something into Google, the autocomplete would be something completely different than if you were or somebody else, uh, you know, in a different part of the country, you know, for example, with global warming. Uh, for me, it might come up with, you know, global warming solutions or something like that. If it was somebody uh, perhaps who had a history of looking up conspiracy theories, it might, you know, autocomplete with global warming hoax or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like these technologies are engineered to kind of keep us in our bubbles in order to put us in a relaxed state. So that way, you know, again, driving ads, driving clicks, make, making purchases. But then what you're telling me is that people are getting them from a variety of sources. So maybe maybe all of these sources are keeping them in their bubbles. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kind of speculating here. It almost seems like, like, it, like I said, it seems a bit counterintuitive mm -hmm. uh, just because when you generally, when you look at a variety of sources, you are more likely than to, to understand what's going on outside of your, let's say, political bubble or your, mm -hmm. your biases. Uh, but I don't see that happening. But maybe again, I'm... You know, I'm biased and it's just, you know, I'm not, well, so I don't I know, what are your thoughts on that? I think a couple of things are going on. So I think, first of all, um, I think that just because you're getting it from many sources doesn't mean you're getting many diverse viewpoints, right? I mean, that's true. if yeah. I read liberally oriented news sources in print and I then look at Politico and Huffington Post and then I watch MSNBC, um, yeah. I'm not going to get a very diverse view, even though I'm looking at my news on multiple platforms. Um, it does take intentionality to seek out news that disagrees with me. I would have to actually seek out sources that I know are going to provide me with information that is different than what I believe now. Um, the second point is that I think that this idea of media bubbles is a little bit exaggerated. There are, a, there are people who do live in a media bubble who um, are, have a very insular um, set of news sources coming in. Um, and so a very limited view of the world. So that certainly is the case for some people. It's especially true of people on both sides of the political extremes. 
But for the average person, this idea of kind of a filter bubble is much less pronounced and much less severe than some of the popular press might lead you to think. Um, there's other evidence that suggests that people who spend time on social media actually have more diverse views because you can't help but be exposed to other viewpoints and other ideas. I mean, think about like, even if someone you're following quote tweets someone else to make fun of them, you've still gotten to see the opposing side's view, right? And that, that over time can filter into your consciousness of at least having a, an awareness of these different perspectives. So I think that those are the two things I would say. I would say, first of all, that diversity of platforms doesn't mean diversity of news sources or like diversity of perspectives, but also that the media bubble effect that is so prominent, there's, no, there's mixed empirical evidence on the, the extent to which that affects everybody. It certainly is, it does affect people who live on the extremes. And then I guess there's a third point, which is to not overestimate how much time people actually spend reading political news. I think that for those of us who are engaged in political news, and I mean, I spend probably many hours a day thinking about political news. For most people, you know, it's it's a it's 10 minutes at most or not at all, right? So people just, the average person spends much less time engaged in political news than those of us who spend a lot of time consuming political news actually think. Um, okay. a, good, a good chat would be to think about, you know, friends and family members. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm just, I'm kind of blown away at things that my like non, non-work friends and some of my family members um, believe or like how much, how, how little time they spend reading the news given how much time I spend on it. Yeah, I think, uh... One of the, so to your first point, I mean, that was, that was really good and kind of, you know, the, just because you're getting your news from a variety of sources doesn't necessarily mean that it's a variety of, I suppose, views across the spectrum, uh, political spectrum. It could be, like you said, just, you know, you're getting your news from a variety of just liberal sources. I mean, it's still a variety, but it's just, let's say liberal sources. You're not doing, you're not mixing both conservative and liberal or something of that nature. But um, yeah, those are great points. And you know, when it comes to this phenomenon of truth decay, what exactly uh, have you found is what we can do about it, you know, based off of the work that you've done? Mm -hmm. So I think that the first thing is that there have to be multiple solutions. It's a really complex phenomenon. There's not just one solution. There's not going to be one solution. And I think we have to tackle the problem both from the production side and the consumption side. So on the consumption side, I think we can think about education. Um, we can use media literacy and other types of um, literacies to help make sure that consumers are better informed and have the skills that they need to navigate online spaces. And media literacy, we often think of as, oh, well, they know how to find things online or they know how to read, um, read news articles and distinguish between true and false information. And that's a piece of it. But really, I think it's, it's useful to think about media literacy as uh, as a worldview. It's, it's about thinking about how we consume and produce information um, and, and, and how the role that information plays in our, in our lives. And that starts with recognizing like where we're experts and where we're not. Um, you know, it's easy to go on WebMD and decide that, you're, that you can collect enough information to diagnose your own illnesses, right? We've all yeah. done it. We've all yeah. gone into the doctor and been like, but I saw on WebMD, right? Um, so recognizing like where you have knowledge and where you, where, and where, where you're an expert and where you, where you're not is really important. Cause that's like the foundation of our ability to understand news and events is what we actually know. Like the facts that we know, we have to have that grounding facts and spending the time to become, um, to get up to date or have the basic facts. So if you're going to read about something, you know, uh, if, if people are throwing around the term constitutional crisis, well, you should really know kind of like what the constitution is and what's in the constitution if you're gonna talk about constitutional crisis. So just making sure that you have the basic foundation. Then a second piece is, is just media literacy isn't just about media. It's also about science literacy and civic literacy and understanding and being able to use statistics. How many articles in the news use statistics? If you don't know how to read and interpret statistics, you could be easily fooled by bad data. So all these different types of literacies um, feature in and then are factor in. And then the last piece is actually the kind of media literacy piece, which is 
do you have the skills to navigate the online space to weed out the bad sources and are you spending the time time is a big piece the time to sift through all these different sources to spend the time reading multiple perspectives thinking about and synthesizing your view so giving people those types of competencies which is not just one competency but a whole set of competencies um, is really i think a key when we're talking about the consumption side um, on the production side, I think that we need to think about better ways to communicate information. Um, and when I say we, I talk, I would think about a range of different knowledge producers. For journalists, I think this means doing a better job of labeling the types of information they provide. It's no problem to provide analysis and opinion mixed with your facts, but make sure you're labeling what type of content you're providing to make it a little bit easier on the reader so that they know that this thing is your opinion, this thing is your analysis, here are the basic facts. I think there's also something to be said for disentangling the role of a journalist and the role of like a public um, commentator, right? I mean, there's a messiness involved with social media platforms where a journalist who is on the one hand supposed to be an objective reporter of the facts and what they see, um, and on the other hand is kind of using Twitter and posting personal opinions and hot takes and things like that, right? It becomes messy because then is that reporter um, unbiased anymore? Um, same thing with mixing kind of editorializing with fact-based reporting. We have to be really careful and do a better job of labeling those types of content. But there's also responsibility for researchers, scientists, people who you know, study these types of complex issues. We need to think about how we do a better job communicating technical research findings in a way that is easy and relatable for the average person. And I think that is, a real challenge. It's a challenge that we at RAND struggle with. It's a challenge that you see scientists struggling with in the context of COVID. Um, how do we communicate the risk of, uh, of different types of behaviors? Um, how do we communicate the, um, the immunity uh, that comes with a vaccine? Um, you know, how do we communicate these types of things in a way that makes sense? Um, anecdotes about the other, uh, the, the like counter examples are really powerful. Telling someone that you know, out of 10,000 vaccines, there were four negative reactions is much less powerful than my friend's brother's cousin who had a negative reaction. So thinking about how we communicate facts and data in a way that is emotionally re resonant and accessible is a real challenge for scientists and researchers. And I think the responsibility that they should take on. And then there's the angle of kind of media governance, which we already talked about. Um, how do we take these online tools, which are, that, that provide such a powerful, way of um, sharing information, of making sure that minority voices get access um, and have a platform to speak, um, a networking tool. There are really great things about social media, but how do we rein in the negative side of facts that come along with these tools? Um, that's another challenge that needs to be tackled. Yeah, the, uh, the problem certainly is multifaceted and all those solutions I you know sound sound wonderful, and uh, in particular the one that resonated with me the most. Um, I mean, they're they're all great, of course I agree, but the one that resonated with me the most is you know we're clearly living through a pandemic right now, and the the basic science literacy along with um, the scientific community being able to effectively communicate the results with the public and have them under understand that and to acknowledge it because we are clearly this entire mm -hmm. pandemic has been just inundated. I mean, the, the WHO uh, coined the term infodemic that accompanied the pandemic. So you have all of this false information just flooding uh, internet and it's having serious consequences. It literally is costing people their lives. Yeah, uh, literally uh, costing people their lives. I agree hundred percent, like the, the amount of disinformation and it's normal that disinformation would be prominent in the, in the kind of uncertainty that we live in now. I also think the challenge presented to scientists and researchers is even greater because uh, now we're in a, in, in, in a situation where um, the, the data is changing all the time, you know, and, and they have to not only communicate these technical research findings, but also explain to a public that may not have a deep knowledge and understanding of, science, of how science evolves, why the guidance today is different than the guidance last week, you know? Yeah. And I know that like me personally, I found it very, um, uh, I don't know what the right, quite the right word is, but you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, they said, no, don't wear masks. You don't need a mask. It's not going to help you. Right. 
Um, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wear masks. Everybody wear masks. Now they're like, oh, you should really wear two masks, right? And so it's like, well, what what about those, like that first month where I'm running around without a mask, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So now what now we look back and we say, well, they didn't have the data that they needed. Maybe they could have made it different. Maybe we would have made different decisions based on, you know, maybe they had enough evidence to make a recommendation, but chose not to, whatever yeah. the reason is. Understanding that science changes and the reason that eggs are good for me today and bad for me tomorrow isn't that science sits are lying for me, lying to me, is that data changes. Data, we get new data, we get new methods, knowledge changes. That's a fact of how how things evolve. Yeah, people are people are seeing science in real time, and mm -hmm. it's a messy process sometimes, and that's just how it is. Um, it's the best knowledge generation framework that we have, and this is just this is the best we have to work with, and that means that we change our minds sometimes. And when we do, it means it, it's for very good reason, and it means that we have evidence that says that we need to change our minds and we need to do something different. Exactly. But uh, anyway, Jennifer, it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, so where exactly can people connect with you? Um, the RAND Corporation, you know, you have the book Truth Decay out as well. Yeah, so we have um, on our uh, main website, um, so the main RAND website, as I said, is www.rand.org. And if you search there for Truth Decay, we have a Countering Truth Decay page. Um, it's actually being revamped. So in like a couple of weeks, it's going to look much better. But um, but we, on that page, we have all of our publications as well as all the media things that we've done. So we have some videos and podcasts and other types of things. Um, in addition to the main book that came out in, in 2018, we have a number of different streams of research now that we've spun off um, out of it. Um, one focused around disinformation. We have one focused around um, social media and news media. So I met and talked a little bit about some of those publications. We have um, a number of publications in the education space, which we talked about as one of the possible solutions. Um, so civic literacy, as well as media literacy. Um, and then we also have um, a body of work around democracy and institutions, thinking about trust in institutions and elections. Um, mostly they, they, this work has been done in support of the uh, 2020 election um, and thinking about some of the consequences of disinformation um, and the pandemic um, on, um, on election outcomes. Um, and so you know, our, our hope is to continue to grow these bodies of work, um, to continue to unpack the layers of this phenomena and increasingly shift from what I would say we started off doing, which was trying to understand the problem to now thinking about how we can um, contribute to solutions to the problem, even though it will be kind of an incremental and long-term process of solving it. Um, there are some things that we think, you know, that we talked about that can help. And so we want to contribute to those. All right, oh, fantastic. You can order everything. Everything okay. can be downloaded for free online. You can order okay. hard copies, but you can also get it for free. Okay. All right, perfect. Uh, and for those of you that are tuning in to today's episode, thanks for stopping by. Uh, definitely go ahead and share, hit that like button, leave us a review. We're always uh, anxious to get some feedback and hear your opinion on the episodes and the other types of content that are coming out. Definitely stay tuned more great things are on the way. So take care.